Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one whom also had leaned back against him, that's Jesus, during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is God's word, and let's pray. Father in heaven, we, at the close of this book, ask you for the same thing we've asked since the beginning of this book, and any time we open the Bible, and that is that you help us understand and obey what we've just read. Lord, we count it a privilege to study your word and to submit ourselves under its authority. We thank you for the ability to gather in your house. And Lord, we thank you that things are different than they were just months ago. We trust you with the months ahead. And we ask you for wisdom to know how to act as your children And, Lord, we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, this will be the 75th message uh, from this pulpit during the period of time I've been with you while we've been in the series on the Gospel of John. Um, Just a moment ago, we finished the last verse and the last words, which means we have... In this room, over that time, read through every last word and studied through each of them. Took us two years, six months, and 11 days. Of course, we had breaks in the summers, typically between Memorial Day and Labor Day. And then there were some Sundays spent topically uh, during Missions Month. We talked about COVID for a month there at one spot. We'd break for Christmas and Easter. And we had to cancel a couple of services, one for an ice storm, the other for a hurricane. But by God's blessing, we didn't have to cancel any services for COVID. You just had to watch them at home for a while. And we've slowly been trickling back in over that time period. But I want you to think of this as a huge undertaking, only because of the size of it. Um, to think of it this way as spending years of your life together as a gathered church. I'll put it this way, to hear the Bible out. Uh, If you've been here for even a majority of the time, you can say with confidence that we didn't just jump in the middle of any part of this book without knowledge of the beginning or the end, but we made sure we heard the man out, what he said, how he said it what it meant, what we're supposed to do. 
And it took time in order to do it, verse by verse and word for word. Um, You could think about the way the world has changed over that same period of time. Uh, I had been here not even three months when we began. It'd be two months and three weeks, give or take a day or two or four. <laughs> trying to remember. My kids are a lot bigger, I know that. They eat twice as much more <laughs> than they've grown. Um, there are some of you, part of this church, that weren't married when we began this. Children have been born Some of our members within this body have gone on to be with the Lord. We've said goodbye. And we've said hello and welcome to a number, large number of members along the way. A lot has has changed. Um, And I say all this only to make the point that this takes time. We're always in a hurry. It just seems the way our, our culture works. It's not necessarily a good thing. And, and, and we tend, I heard this the other day, to glorify you know, being busy. Um, but the best things in life never happen in a hurry. They never pop out of a microwave. Most of the stuff we eat comes out of a microwave is not good, right? It's just convenient. Well, to learn the Bible and to be useful to the kingdom takes time. Within circles of uh, professional ministry, conferences and books and all the little discussions that happen at those tables. Church growth comes up a lot and how fast the church is growing and how many of the numbers are multiplying. But I've never heard anyone really come down and and, and want to be proud of how quickly they turn out disciples because I think that's when it would become shameful. How fast should you expect to grow a useful Christian to the kingdom of God? No faster than I would expect to raise my children such that they could leave the house on their own. Wouldn't you say? So to take the time to say that we've been through an entire gospel together is something I've spent this much of the message just to say I want you to think of it with a sense of accomplishment. And to look at the end here as a close to one chapter and then next week we'll open another (laughs) And we'll continue until I'm dead or incapacitated. That's just what we do because it matters that much. So this paragraph here basically can be divided into two lessons. Some would say, well, this is just what's left over at the end. They had a few extra parts. It kind of sounds like, you know, just tying up a few loose ends. No, there's, some, there's two very valuable lessons right here at the end. And I'll give them to you here at the front. One has to do with us. One has to do with Jesus. But the first is God has plans for you, but they're likely different than the plans he has for others. This, of course, has to do with Peter, who'd just been told what he should expect by the end of his life. And he turns and points to John and says, well, what about him? And Jesus tells him, that's my business. That's one lesson. The second... And this has to do with the very last verse having to do with all the books that could be written and where would we put them. Jesus is far better than you can ever imagine. John clearly tells us we've only scratched the surface. So let's look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them 
the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Peter said to him, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, that means come back. What is that to you? You follow me. So whether or not, and this is kind of bumping 20 back up against 19, where it seems everyone was at the fish breakfast that Jesus had made. Peter was being dealt with as far as his reinstatement. We don't know when Peter and Jesus began to walk away from that. They might have been doing it from, for some time, part of that conversation, all of it. We think it made most sense that that conversation was for the group. But either way, John has left the group and is now following behind Jesus and Peter. That much is clear. And the reminder here that the disciple gives us, the one who's writing the book, is that this is the same guy who leaned on Jesus the Last Supper and asked about the betrayal. Now, that inclusion here is uh, really the 21st chapter is loaded with these editorial comments. You know, the first was describing why Peter put his coat on. Well, because he was stripped for fishing. And then the explanation, nobody wanted to ask Jesus if it was really him because they knew that it was him. And then you've got here, well, this is the same guy who's leaning back on Jesus, Last Supper and all that. And there's a few more before the end. Editorial comments, but there's purposes for that. Why would he go to the trouble to explain that? Well, a couple of reasons at least. One, to tell us that John was close to Jesus. You don't get to sit next to Jesus or lean back on Jesus. You don't get to call yourself the one whom Jesus loved without some measure of significance attached to the closeness of that relationship. Second, it was to point that Peter had asked John to ask Jesus who would betray him. And this tells us that John was close to Peter. They were working together. Peter said, hey, you ask him. When we get to the book of Acts, these two are inseparable. So that these two are close and that the other two are close, you've, you've kind of got three guys, Peter talking to Jesus and John in the distance. That helps us frame the picture enough to help us interpret the things that follow. And then you've got to remember from last week that Peter had just been told that he will basically be called upon to give his life for the cause of Christ as a martyr. Um, a lot to swallow. And knowing that the three of these men are closer, these are the inner circle, at least two of them, um, minus James. So if Peter is going to say, what about him? Uh, what's going to happen to John? And he's the youngest, we think. I don't think you've got competition going on here. Like, okay, who gets to sit on your right hand and your left in the kingdom? I think he's worried. He's just been given, basically, a snapshot into his own death. Maybe he's worried about John. It's hard for us to understand what's going through his mind, but we can maybe put some of the dots together and at least have an educated speculation. I'd like to think that this is just good old Peter that we've known so far. 
who at this point, just previous, had been restored after he denied the Lord three times. He had to go through the process of saying, yes, I love you three times. It must have been painful. And of course, he is or has been recommissioned. But he's still Peter. He's still going to ask a question that is going to trigger a rebuke. That's Peter, right? It's the same guy who always thinks, oh, and then, no, there's a line here. I can't let you cross it. I don't think that Jesus is being aggravated or short. He gives what's necessary, and there does seem to be, or it would feel as though there's some acid in that rebuke. But regardless of the motivation, Jesus has checked him for this and goes on to say, if I want him to stay until I come back, what is it to you? Which is a more elegant way of saying, mind your own business, or that's my business, or my business is my own, might be a little nicer. But even so, that's basically what he's told him. You're going to die for my name, and I know what's going to happen to John, but I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen to John, even though I might tell John like I told you. But there's a difference between you and John, and I'm only dealing with you each individually. And then it's probably good that we make sure we don't assume any belittling of either disciple, because some want to say, well, John's following Uh, He should be there. Some say, no, Peter's the one that had a problem with following. John's done that all along. There's all types of things that go into this. But the point of the passage, I think, clearly is this. One of them is going to be called to strategic pastoral ministry and a martyr's crown. We know that much. And the other to a long life as a strategic eyewitness writing for the sake of others. One gospel, three letters, and an apocalypse. And this one's the latest of the gospels that we have. So that's clearly what God had intended for him. Um, Basically, I've chosen, Peter, you be faithful to what you've been given. And the last words are, you follow me. Not just follow me, as he'd said before, but you follow me. Don't worry about John. So Jesus is basically telling Peter to focus. Any of you mothers have more than one child and realize that they're not all the same and some of them need a little more of that focus, maybe to take the hands both sides of the face. Now focus here, all right, while their eyes go, look at me. You follow me. Let me worry about John. And I'll take care of John the same way I'm going to take care of you. Even though it might look vastly different from anyone else. All right, let's look at verse 23. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So John tells us here, this is another editorial comment, an explanation of something that was going on that we wouldn't know about if he didn't tell us. And what was going on was that a lot of people misunderstood as this was repeated and remembered that, hey, we can expect Jesus to come back before John is dead because that's what Jesus told Peter. 
And John is telling us that's not at all what Jesus told Peter. What Jesus told Peter was, what difference would it make to you if I allowed that? He didn't say that he promised that that's the way it would go. So, big surprise. The church misinterprets something Jesus says and spreads it like a rumor and gets way off base. And that was the last time that ever happened, right? (laughs) That day. Or maybe that hour. What we need to learn here is the importance of understanding and knowledge, but paying attention to exactly what Jesus says and keeping our discussion to that. Now, some say this rumor made its rounds after John had died and that its inclusion here is indicative of someone else writing this last chapter. We talked last week that I don't share that. I think it's a stronger issue that if John is dead, then this issue is dead and no longer needs to be addressed. But back to this business of minding one's own business. Um, Before we move to that next point, each one of our lives is a unique sovereign creation of God down to the individuality of our fingerprints. He's made each of us the way he wanted us to be, and no two of us are the same. Our worth and effectiveness... Even God's favor on our lives is never to be understood in comparison with another's. It'll always get us into the ditch. Um, I'll read this here because I, I, I thought it was important to say it carefully. All musings about the relative situations of our lives, how one seems to have it easier than another, or how one is healthier how another's less financially free, how one's ministry's growing, and another's shot through with hardship. All such ciphering is manifestly unprofitable. It'll never get you closer to the Lord to wonder why another of his children is different than you or how he's dealing with you or what he has planned for you. That, that, that's this point here, the first lesson. God has plans for you, though it's most likely they will not resemble his plans for anyone else. And this is clearly what he tells Peter. I'll be the judge of that. Um, we never grow out of the curiosity for wondering what somebody else's business is. I can remember... Only having the, the guts enough to ask my daddy about his business with one of my brothers or my sister, but maybe once or twice I learned that's, a, that's an empty well. I'm, I'm not going, going to get an answer to that. Well, here, let me tell you, this is what I think. No, that, that was his business. He was the one responsible for their growth and development and correction and leadership So we shouldn't be surprised. I don't think that it's difficult for us to understand. We we, we see that. It's it's not often that you can go uh, write an email to the head of the company and ask why he handled such and such as whatever the way he did. That's not for you to know. One of my favorite ways was uh, this was in Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. It's fiction. I don't know if 
you've read those or familiar with them, they're as good to read as adults as they were to read as a child if you read them then. But in The Horse's Boy, there's a situation where Aslan, which is the Christ figure who's a talking lion in this book. A lot of the animals talk. Um, He's having a conversation with a runaway named Shasta who's being clued in on how he had providentially shaped the change in his life over the course of a period of time and saved him from much pain and peril, had uh, run wolves away while he slept one night and had guided his boat as it was adrift to right where he needed to be. And in the middle of this conversation, it becomes apparent that if he was there at a certain spot doing what he says he did, then what about the other that was with him who was wounded? And he immediately asked, was that you too? And the answer was, that was me. The next question was, but why? And he basically says, I'm telling your story. I only tell any one story to that person themselves. I'm paraphrasing here. Lewis said it a lot more elegantly, but basically, that's not for you to know. Because it looked like a contradiction. You helped me, but this person was hurt. Of course, that was his child too. And sometimes it includes that. You look at this and say, John got to, he was the only disciple that wasn't martyred. Now, exile on Patmos is not necessarily Club Med. But all the stuff that he wrote and these others, crucified, maybe upside down. How's that fair? How's it described here by John? That's how he glorified his Lord in his death. We're not to author these things because we don't understand them from our limited perspective here on earth. Look at verse 24, another editorial comment. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There's another place where folks like to think, oh, we've got another author here. John uses I and we all the time, and he uses it a lot in his epistles. Uh, Some call it the royal we. You speak of those recipients of, of this or the people within the church of Ephesus. That's not a huge roadblock. But what you've got here is one last time. He's been saying it from the opening. These are written so that you might believe. This is all an eyewitness testimony. These are hand-picked, selected signs to convince you that Jesus was who he said he was. He's already told us that what he has said is true multiple times. Here at the end, next to the last verse, one more time, John claims his eyewitness testimony is true. And at this point at the end, we're, we're, we're left only with a couple options. Either you reject the eyewitness account of John, which is paramount to calling John a liar. I don't believe you. Or to accept what he's written, which is to believe, which is to have eternal life. Not because of John, but because of the contents of what happened as John saw it. And then we've got the last verse. Verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. 
were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, this reading has a lot in common with the ending of the previous chapter. That was his, his purpose statement. Now, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and in believing you might have life in his name. That's 20, 30, and 31. But here, I want you just to kind of use your imagination picking up on the dramatic words that are being used and what John expects you to uh, paint in your mind. But if this is to be compared to what was said at the end of the last chapter, this verse basically has the top and the sides knocked out of it. Because you're adding to many other signs that he did in the sight of the disciples, which are not written. But here, many other things that Jesus did, so many that if they were all recorded... The world itself could not contain them. That's, that's quite an imaginative statement. That's a big statement. We're not talking in small little things here. He's, he's asking you to open one's mind and take a huge, a huge bite. Some have said, and this is in reading commentaries, studying for this, you, you've got kind of different opinions as to what he's doing here, but some say that this may be taken as a pardonable exaggeration. I was going to ask, without showing of hands, how many of you think John's exaggerating here? Or how many of you think, I think that he's exaggerating here? hope you would know by now, I wouldn't think that, that this is hyperbolic language. And the reason why I don't is because I think that would be to ignore the stylistic and the theological care of John through the whole book. John hasn't been speaking in small terms through the, the whole thing. I mean, the first 18 verses, that, that was his prologue, where he made all his truth claims. Everything else in the whole book goes back to those truth claims. If you can swallow the first 18 verses, the rest of the book is just explanation of those monstrous themes. The first is, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then gets into this business of, of that one, the Word, having created all things such that without Him was not anything made that was made. And then... In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. So this, this word had the, the life within him such that life can be shared, and that life enlightens the whole world. I, that, that, there's not much other... I don't know how you improve. If you want to expand on the monstrosity of these themes, how do you do so? So if he's asking you to think big at the beginning of the book, why in the world would he exaggerate at the end? He still expects you to be thinking big. I mean, we just got done with uh, 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the seventh and ultimate sign that he couldn't stay dead because he had never sinned. This is an exaggeration. This is a dramatic way for John to tell us that if we could, if it were possible, to write down everything that Jesus did, we'd still have another problem. Where would we put it all once we'd done it? Now, if you want to skip the prologue, John's gospel begins with a man from a town with a bad reputation, but it ends with a man whose deeds are so many and marvelous that the world he made couldn't contain what he'd done. That would make sense, too. If he's who he says he is, why in the world could we contain his biography on the little old planet that he made in six days and rested on the seventh? So I was thinking when I got to this point, sometimes that's good for public consumption as far as what's interesting or helpful in understanding passage of Scripture. But it had it had been maybe three weeks or so ago that I had watched a documentary um, which had to do with some advances in medical science that allow us to actually modify, even customize, our genetic code that heretofore some of these things were just an impossibility, maybe science fiction. And, of course, there's this massive uh, ethical debate going on. Okay, is this just us um, filling the earth and subduing it with the mind and intelligence that God gave us, or are we actually presuming to play God himself? And there's all twists and turns in, in this, but the part of the documentary that I appreciated the most was an articulation and explanation of the complexity of our genetic code as it is and the order that's involved against chance. And I was thinking back with that on how to explain the idea of writing down everything that Jesus did and whether or not I could convince the guy who would say that John is exaggerating, though, in a pardonable way. I got, took a, f- a few minutes um, researching, you know, asking the Google, if you were to take the genetic code, and, and, and that's an achievement mankind has accomplished to map the human genome in four-letter uh, pairs, helix and all. And it's billions of, of, of pieces of information. I wanted to know if you were to print it out. If I just went to the office and said, hey, I, I need this printed. If you're using one-inch margins, 12-point type, times New Roman, single space, it's easier to count by the reams of paper than it would be the pages. And that's 500 pages per ream. With the thinner paper, it's about two and a quarter inches tall. You stack those on top of each other vertically. You land somewhere between the height of uh, the Statue of Liberty and the Washington Monument. 
It's about 424 feet tall. Now, if you put a spine on that bad boy and called it a book, okay, then you have your own genetic code with no explanation, no, 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 no footnotes, nothing but the code itself and only a repetition of four capital letters in different variations over and over and over again. Now, the doctors, scientists tell us that you have actually four copies of that monstrosity of a book, two from your mother and two from your father, in every last cell of your body. Now, some of us are bigger, some of us are smaller, but on average, again, the experts tell us that we've only got about 30 trillion cells in our body. So if you took the 30 trillion cells, four copies a piece, that's 120 trillion copies of that 425-foot book. So I think it's safe to say that you could litter the surface of the planet with just one subject. That is how Jesus made you, you. That's not to talk about what you like, what you dislike, what you did since you were born, your first word who you love, who loves you. And that's not even to speak of the other animals that the Lord made, plants and animals, each with their own unique genetic code, and just the insects. I mean, if we're talking about all the genetic code, they make up for those cells in numbers, right? And then we haven't even really even got to real numbers yet. There's the grains of the sand on the seashore and the stars and the heavens. And John told us at the beginning, without him, there wasn't anything made that was made. So at the end of his book, he just, I don't know. I don't think he's exaggerating. He might be just wrapping it up. We'll just say that if we were to write it down, you wouldn't be able to put it anywhere especially if you're using something as clumsy as paper and pen. But within your bodies, you've got the fingerprint of the mind of God and his love for you. Another thing that came to mind was uh, the lyrics of a song, which we're going to sing to conclude here. When you're a pastor's kid and you grow up in a church, uh, there are certain things that dawn on you at certain times I guess, phases in your life. A lot of that stuff just kind of goes by. You, you ignore it because you hear it all the time. But I remember being in Lynchburg and listening as we sang through the love of God and being struck with the imagery in the second verse, which talks about the oceans. If we could, could, could fill the oceans, if they were ink, and uh, if the skies were of parchment made and if every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry nor could the scroll contain the whole if stretched from sky to sky. Now the question is not are you impressed the question John is asking is, do you believe? Do you believe that? 
And if you do, you have life. And if you don't, you do not. It's that simple. I hope you do. I hope when you lay awake at night thinking through big questions, you've got a big answer. Even if it's just something, say, oh, we couldn't even think our way through that. It couldn't contain the books. He's that big. But John has given us everything we need to know to at least understand the mess we were in because of our sins and the price that was paid on the shoulders of Jesus and what it takes for that to apply to our account and to free us from sins and reunite us with God the Father. That as much is crystal clear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, your loving kindness, your special revelation in the scriptures. And Lord, on occasion, blowing our mind with your greatness. Thank you for your love and its immeasurability. Lord, you are far greater than we could ever imagine. And Lord, we thank you for John, for John's gospel, for your word, for Wake Chapel, for a Sunday morning. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.